A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 65. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 21. Thebes. Part 5. To rob the dead was always a lucrative trade at Thebes, and we may be certain that the splendid pharaohs who slept in the valley of the tombs of the kings went to their dark palaces magnificently equipped for the life to come. When, indeed, one thinks of the jewels, furniture, vases, ointments, clothing, arms, and precious documents, which were as certainly buried in those tombs as the royal mummies for whom they were excavated, it seems far more wonderful that the parure of one queen should have escaped, rather than that all the rest of these dead-and-gone royalties should have fallen among thieves. Of all the tombs in the valley of Bab el Malik, one would rather, I think, have discovered that of Ramesses Third, As he was one of the richest of the pharaohs, and an undoubted virtuoso in his tastes, so we may be sure that his tomb was furnished with all kinds of beautiful and precious things. What would we not give now to find some of those elaborate gold and silver vases, those cushioned thrones and sofas, those bows and quivers and shirts of mail so carefully catalogued on the walls of the side chambers in the first corridor? I do not doubt that specimens of all these things were buried with the king and left ready for his use. He died believing that his ka would enjoy and make use of these treasures, and that his soul would come back after long cycles of probation, and make its home once more in the mummied body. He thought he should rise as from sleep, cast off his bandages, eat and be refreshed, and put on sandals and scented vestments, and take his staff in his hand, and go forth again into the light of everlasting day. Poor ghost, wandering bodiless through space! Where now are thy funeral-baked meats, thy changes of raiment, thy perfumes and precious ointments? Where is that body for which thou wert once so solicitous, and without which resurrection is impossible? One fancies thee sighing forlorn through these desolate halls when all is silent and the moon shines down the valley. Life at Thebes is made up of incongruities. A morning among temples is followed by an afternoon of antiquity hunting, and a day of meditation among tombs winds up with a dinner-party on board some friend's dahabiyah, or a fantasia at the British consulate. El and the writer did their fair share of antiquity-hunting, both at Luxor and elsewhere, but chiefly at Luxor. I may say, indeed, that our life here was one long pursuit of the pleasures of the chase. The game, it is true, was prohibited, but we enjoyed it none the less because it was illegal. Perhaps we enjoyed it the more." There were whispers about this time of a tomb that had been discovered on the western side, a wonderful tomb, rich in all kinds of treasure. No one, of course, had seen these things. No one knew who had found them. No one knew where they were hidden. But there was a solemn secrecy about certain of the Arabs, and a conscious look about some of the visitors, and an air of awakened vigilance about the government officials, which savoured of mystery. These rumours by and by assumed more definite proportions. Dark hints were dropped of a possible papyrus, the M.B.'s babbled of mummies, and an American dahabiyah lying innocently off Karnak was reported to have a mummy on board. Now neither L. nor the writer desired to become the happy proprietor of an ancient Egyptian, 
but the papyrus was a thing to be thought of. In a fatal hour we expressed a wish to see it. From that moment every mummy-snatcher in the place regarded us as his lawful prey. Beguiled into one den after another, we were shown all the stolen goods in Thebes. Some of the things were very curious and interesting. In one house we were offered two bronze vases, each with a band of delicately engraved hieroglyphs running round the lip. Also a square stand of basket-work in two colours, precisely like that engraved in Sir G. Wilkinson's first volume, after the original in the Berlin Museum. Pieces of mummy-case, and a wall-sculpture, and sepulchre tablets abounded, and on one occasion we were introduced into the presence of a mummy. All these houses were tombs, and in this one the mummy was stowed away in a kind of recess at the end of a long rock-cut passage, probably the very place once occupied by the original tenant. It was a mummy of the same period as that which we saw disentombed under the auspices of the governor, and was enclosed in the same kind of cartonage, patterned in many colours on a white ground. I shall never forget that curious scene, the dark and dusty vault, the Arabs with their lanterns, the mummy in its gaudy cerements lying on an old mat at our feet. Meanwhile we tried in vain to get sight of the coveted papyrus. A grave Arab dropped in once or twice after nightfall, and talked it over vaguely with the dragoman, but never came to the point. He offered it first with a mummy for one hundred pounds. Finding, however, that we would neither buy his papyrus unseen nor his mummy at any price, he haggled and hesitated for a day or two, evidently trying to play us off against some rival or rivals unknown, and finally disappeared. These rivals, we afterwards found out, were the M.B.'s. They bought both mummy and papyrus at an enormous price, and then, unable to endure the perfume of their ancient Egyptian, drowned the dear departed at the end of a week. Other purchasers are possibly less sensitive. We heard, at all events, of fifteen mummies successfully insinuated through the Alexandrian custom-house by a single agent that winter. There is, in fact, a growing passion for mummies among Nile travellers. Unfortunately, the prices rise with the demand, and although the buying is practically inexhaustible, a mummy nowadays becomes not only a prohibited but a costly luxury. At Luxor the British, American, and French consuls are Arabs. The Prussian consul is a Copt. The Austrian consul is, or was, an American. The French consul showed us over the old tumble-down building called the French House, which, though but a rude structure of palm-timbers and sun-dried clay, built partly against and partly over the temple of Luxor, has its place in history. For there, in 1829, Champollion and Rossellini lived and worked together, during part of their long sojourn at Thebes. Rossellini tells how they used to sit up at night, dividing the fruits of the day's labour, Champollion copying whatever might be useful for his Egyptian grammar, and Rossellini the new words that furnished materials for his dictionary. There, too, lodged the naval officers sent out by the French in 1831, to remove the obelisk which now stands in the Place de la Concorde. And there, writing those charming letters that delight the world, Lady Duff Gordon lingered through the last few winters of her life. The rooms in which she first lived, and the balcony in which she took such pleasure, were no longer accessible, owing to the ruinous state of one of the staircases, but we saw the rooms she last inhabited. Her couch, her rug, her folding chair, 
were there still. The walls were furnished with a few cheap prints and a pair of tin sconces. All was very bare and comfortless. We asked if it was just like this when the Sitta lived here. The Arab consul replied that she had a table and some books. He looked himself in the last stage of consumption, and spoke and moved like one that had done with life. We were shocked at the dreariness of the place till we went to the window. That window, which commanded the Nile and the western plain of Thebes, furnished the room and made its poverty splendid. The sun was near setting. We could distinguish the mounds and the pylons of Medinet Habu and the site of the Ramesseum. The terraced cliffs, overtopped by the pyramidal mountain of Bab el-Malik, burned crimson against a sky of stainless blue. The footpath leading to the valley of the tombs of the kings showed like a hot white scar winding along the face of the rocks. The river gave back the sapphire tones of the sky. I thought I could be well content to spend many a winter in no matter how comfortless a lodging, if I only had that wonderful view, with its infinite beauty of light and color and space, and its history and its mystery always before my windows. Another historical house is that built by Sir G. Wilkinson among the tombs of Sheikh Abd el Kurna. Here he lived while amassing the materials for his manners and customs of the ancient Egyptians, and here Lepsius and his company of artists put up while at work on the western bank. Science makes little impression on the native mind. No one now remembers Champollion or Rossellini or Sir G. Wilkinson, but every Arab in Luxor cherishes the memory of Lady Duff Gordon in his heart of hearts, and speaks of her with blessings. The French house was built over the roof of the sanctuary at the southern end of the temple. At the northern end, built up between the enormous sandstone columns of the great colonnade, was the house of Mustafa Aga, most hospitable and kindly of British consuls. Mustafa Aga had travelled in Europe, and spoke fluent Italian, English, and French. His eldest son was governor of Luxor, his younger, the little Ahmed whom Lady Duff Gordon delighted to educate having spent two years in England as the guest of Lord D., had become an accomplished Englishman. In the round of gaiety that goes on at Luxor, the British consulate played the leading part. Mustafa Aga entertained all the English dahabiyas, and all the English dahabiyas entertained Mustafa Aga. We were invited to several fantasias at the consulate, and dined with Mustafa Aga at his suburban house the evening before we left Luxor. The appointed hour was 8.30 p.m. We arrived amid much barking of dogs, and were received by our host in a large, empty hall surrounded by a divan. Here we remained till dinner was announced. We were next ushered through an anteroom where two turbaned and barefooted servants were in waiting, the one with a brass basin and ewer, the other with an armful of Turkish towels. We then, each in turn, held our hands over the basin, had water poured on them, and received a towel apiece. These towels we were told to keep, and they served for dinner napkins. The anteroom opened into a brilliantly lighted dining-room of moderate size, having in the centre a round brass table with an upright fluted rim, like a big tray. For each person were placed a chair, a huge block of bread, a wooden spoon, two tumblers, and a bouquet. Plates, knives, forks, there were none. 
The party consisted of the happy couple, the director of the Luxor Telegraph Office, L, the writer, Ahmed, and our host. "'Tonight we are all Arabs,' said Mustafa Aga, as he showed us where to sit. "'We drink Nile water, and we eat with our fingers.' So we drank Nile water, and for the first time in our lives we ate with our fingers. In fact, we found them exceedingly useful. The dinner was excellent. Without disrespect to our own accomplished chef, or to the accomplished chefs of our various friends upon the river, I am bound to say that it was the very best dinner I ever ate out of Europe. Everything was hot, quickly served, admirably dressed, and the best of its kind. Here is the menu. Menu, March 31, 1874. White soup, turkey. Fish, fried samnac. Entrees, stewed pigeons, spinach and rice. Roast, dal. Entrees, kebabs of mutton, kebabs of lamb's kidneys, tomatoes with rice. Roast, turkey with cucumber sauce. Entree, pilaf of rice. Second course, Mishmish, Rus, Bleben, Kunafa, Totla. These dishes were placed one at a time in the middle of the table, and rapidly changed. Each dipped his own spoon in the soup, dived into the stew, and pulled off pieces of fish or lamb with his fingers. Having no plates, we made plates of our bread. Meanwhile, Mustafa Aga, like an attentive host, tore off an especially choice morsel now and then, and handed it to one or another of his guests. To eat gracefully with one's fingers is a fine art. To carve with them skillfully is a science. None of us, I think, will soon forget the wonderful way in which our host attacked and vanquished the turkey, a solid colossus weighing twenty pounds, and roasted to perfection. Half rising, he turned back his cuff, poised his wrist, and driving his forefinger and thumb deep into the breast, brought out a long, stringy, smoking fragment, which he deposited on the plate of the writer. Thus begun, the turkey went round the table amid peals of laughter, and was punished by each in turn. The pilaf which followed is always the last dish served at an Egyptian or Turkish dinner. After this, our spoons were changed, and the sweets were put upon the table. The drinks throughout were plain water, rice water, and lemonade. Some native musicians played in the ante-room during dinner, and when we rose from the table we washed our hands, as before. We now returned to the large hall, and not being accomplished in the art and mystery of sitting cross-legged, curled ourselves up on the divans as best we could. The writer was conducted by Mustafa Aga to the corner seat at the upper end of the room, where he said the Princess of Wales had sat when their royal highnesses dined with him the year before. We were then served with pipes and coffee. The gentlemen smoked shibuks and cigarettes, while for us there were gorgeous rose-water nargilas with long, flexible tubes and amber mouthpieces. L. had the princess's pipe, and smoked it very cleverly all the evening. By and by came the governor, the cadi of Luxor, the Prussian consul and his son, and some three or four grave-looking merchants in rich silk robes and ample turbans. Meanwhile the band, two fiddles, a tambourine, a nadarabuka, played at intervals at the lower end of the hall, pipes, coffee, and lemonade went continually around, and the entertainment wound up, as native entertainments always do wind up at Luxor, with a performance of Gawazi. End of section 65